Chapter 6 of Verney the Vampire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Liz Black. Verney the Vampire, Volume 1, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter 6. A glance at the Bannerworth family, the probable consequences of the mysterious apparition's appearance. Having thus far, we hope, interested our readers in the fortunes of a family which had become subject to so dreadful a visitation, we trusted a few words concerning them and the peculiar circumstances in which they are now placed will not prove altogether out of place or unacceptable. The Bannerworth family, then, were well known in the part of the country where they resided. Perhaps, if we were to say they were better known by name than they were light on account of that name, we should be near the truth, for it had unfortunately happened that for a very considerable time past, the head of the family had been the very worst specimen of it that could be procured. While the Uno branches were frequently amiable and most intelligent, and such in mind and manner as were calculated to inspire good will in all who knew them, he who held the family property, and who resided in the house now occupied by Flora and her brothers, was a very so-so sort of character. This state of things by some strange fatality, had gone on for nearly a hundred years, and the consequence was what might have been fairly expected, namely that what with their vices and what with their extravagances, the successive heads of the Bannerworth family had succeeded in so far diminishing the family property that, when it came into the hands of Henry Bannerworth, it was of little value on account of the numerous encumbrances with which it was settled. The father of Harry had not been a very brilliant exception to the general rule, as regarded the head of the family. If he were not quite so bad as many of his ancestors, that gratifying circumstance was to be accounted for by the supposition that he was not quite so bold, and that the changes in habits manners and laws which had taken place in a hundred years made it not so easy for even a landed proprietor to play the petty tyrant. He had to get rid of those animal spirits which had prompted many of his predecessors to downright crimes, had recourse to the gaming table, and, after raising whatever sums he could upon the property which remained, he naturally and as might have been fully expected, lost them all. He was found lying dead in the garden of the house one day, and by his side was his pocket-book, on one leaf of which, it was the impression of the family, he had endeavoured to write something previous to his decease, for he held the pencil firmly in his grasp. The probability was that he had felt himself getting ill, and, being desirous of making some communication to his family which pressed heavily upon his mind, he had attempted to do so, 
but was stopped by the too rapid approach of the hand of death. For some days previous to his decease, his conduct had been extremely mysterious. He had announced an intention of leaving England forever, of selling the house and grounds for whatever they would fetch over and above the sums for which they were mortgaged, and so clearing himself of all encumbrances. He had, but a few hours before he was found lying dead, made the following singular speech to Henry. Do not regret, Henry, that the old house which had been in our family so long is about to be parted with. Be assured that, if it is but for the first time in my life, have good and substantial reasons now for what I am about to do. We shall be able to go to some other country and there live like princes of the land. Where the means were to come from to live like a prince, unless Mr. Bannerworth had some of the German princes in his eye, no one he knew but himself, and his sudden death buried with him that most important secret. There were some words written on the leaf of his pocket-book, but they were of by far too indistinct and ambiguous a nature to lead to anything. They were these. The money he is... Uh, and then there was a long scroll of the pencil, which seemed to have been occasioned by a sudden disease. Of course, nothing could be made of these words, except in the way of a contradiction, as the family lawyer said, rather more facetiously than a man of law usually speaks, for if he had written, The money is not, it would have been somewhere remarkably near the truth. However, with all his vices, he was regretting by his children, which is rather to remember him in his best aspect than to dwell upon his faults. For the first time, then, within the memory of a man, the head of the family of the Bannerworth was a gentleman in every sense of the word, brave, generous, ugly educating, and full of many excellent and noble qualities. For such was Henry, whom we have introduced to our readers under such distressing circumstances. And now, people said, that the family property having been all dissipated and lost, there would take place a change, and that the Bannerworth would have to take some course of honourable industry for a livelihood, and that then they would be as much respected as they had before been detested and disliked. Indeed, the position which Harry held was now a most precarious one, for one of the amazingly clever acts of his father had been to encumber the property with overwhelming claims, so that when Harry administered to the estate, it was doughty almost by Saturny, if it were at all desirable, to do so. An attachment, however, to the old house of his family had induced the young man to hold possession of it as long as he could, despite any adverse circumstance which might eventually be connected with it. Some weeks, however, only after the decease of his father, and when he fairly held possession, a sudden and a most unexpected offer came to him from a solicitor in London, of whom he knew nothing, to purchase the house and grounds for a client of his, 
when instructed him so to do, but whom he did not mention. The offer made was a liberal one, and beyond the value of the place. The lawyer who had conducted Harry's affairs for him since his father's decease, advised him by all means to take it. But after a consultation with his mother and sister, and George, they all resolved to hold by their own house as long as they could, and consequently refused the offer. He was then asked to let the place, and today his own price for the occupation of it, but that he would not do. So the negotiation went off altogether, leaving only in the minds of the family much surprise at the exceeding eagerness of someone whom they knew not to get possession of the place on any terms. There was another circumstance, perhaps, which materially aided in producing a strong feeling on the minds of the Bennewith, with regard to the remaining where they were. That circumstance occurred thus. A relation of the family was now dead, and with whom had died all his means, had been in the habit for the last half-dozen years of his life, of sending a hundred pounds to Harry, for the express purpose of enabling him and his brother Jar and his sister Flora to take a little continental or home tour in the autumn of the year. A more acceptable present, or for a more delightful purpose to young people, could not be found, and, with the quiet, prudent habits of all three of them, they contrived to go far and to see much for the sum which was too handsomely placed at their disposal. In one of those excursions, when among the mountains of Italy, an adventure occurred which placed the life of Flora in imminent hazard. They were riding along a narrow mountain path, and, as sleeping, she fell over the ledge of a precipice. In an instant, a young man, a stranger to the whole party, who was travelling in the vicinity, rushed to the spot, and by his knowledge and exertions, they felt convinced her preservation was effected. He told her to lie quiet, he encouraged her to hope for immediate succour, and then, with much personal exertion, and that immense risk to himself, he reached the ledge of rock on which she lay, and then he supported her until the brothers had gone to a neighbouring house, which, by the by, was two good English miles off, and got assistance. There come on, while they were gone, a terrific storm, and Flora felt that but for him, who was with her, she must have been hurled from the rock, and perished in abyss below, which was almost too deep for observation. Suffice it to say that she was rescued, and he would, by his intrepidity, done so much towards saying being her, was loaded with the most sincere and heartfelt acknowledgments by the brothers as well as by herself. He frankly told them that his name was Holland, that he was travelling for amusement and destruction, and was by profession an artist. He travelled with them for some time, and it was not at all bewondered that, under the circumstances, that an attachment of the tenderest nature should spring up between him and the beautiful girl, who felt that she owed to him her life. Mutual glances of affection were exchanged between them, 
that it was arranged that when he returned to England, he should come at once as an honoured guest to the house of the family of the Bellaworth. All this was settled satisfactorily with the full knowledge and acquiescence of the two brothers, who had taken a strange attachment to the young Charles Holland, who was indeed, in every way, likely to propitiate the good opinion of all who knew him. Henry explained to him exactly how they were situated, and told him that when he came he would find a welcome from all, except possibly his father, whose wayward temper he could not ask the fool. Young Holland stated that he was compelled to be away for a term of two years from certain family arrangements he had entered into, and that then he would return and hope to meet Flora and change it as it should be. It happened that this was the last of the continental excursions of the Bannerwards, for, before another year rolled round, the generous relative who had supplied them with the means of making such delightful trips was no more, and, likewise, the death of the father had occurred in the manner we have related, so that there was no chance, as had been anticipated and hoped for by Flora, of meeting Charles Holland on the continent again, before his two years of absence from England should be expired. Such, however, being the state of things, Flora felt reluctant to give up the house, but it would be sure to come to look for her, and her happiness was too dear to Henry to induce him to make any sacrifice of it to expediency. Therefore was it that Bannerworth Hall, as it was sometimes called, was retained, and fully intended to be retained at all events, until after Charles Holland had made his appearance, and his advice, for he was by the young people considered one of the family, taken with regard to what was advisable to be done. With one exception, this was the state of affairs of the whole, and that exception related to Mr. Marchdale. He was a distant relation of Mrs. Bannerworth, and, early in life, had been sincerely and tenderly attached to her. She, however, with the want of steady reflection of a young girl, as she then was, and, as is generally the case among several admirers, chosen the very worst, that is, the man who had treated her with the most indifference and who paid her the least attention, was, of course, thought of the most of, and she gave her hand to him. That man was Mr. Bannerworth, but future experience had made her truly awake to her former error, and, but for the love she bore her children, who were certainly all that a mother's heart could wish she would often have deeply regretted the infatuation which had induced her to bestow her hand in the quarter she had done so. About a month after the decease of Mr. Bannerworth, there came one to the hole who desired to see the widow. That one was Mr. Marshdale. It might have been some slight tenderness towards him which had never left her, or it might be the pleasure merely of seeing one whom she had known intimately in early life, but, be that as it may, she certainly gave him a kindly welcome, and he, after consenting to remain for some time as a visitor at the hall, 
won the esteem of the whole family by his frank demeanor and cultivated intellect. He had traveled much and seen much, and he had turned to good account all he had seen. That not only was Mr. Marchdale a man of sterling sound sense, but he was a most entertaining companion. His intimate knowledge of many things concerning which they knew little or nothing, his accurate modes of thought, and a quiet, gentlemanly demeanor, such as is rarely to be met with, combined to make him esteemed by the Benowards. He had a small independence of his own, and being completely alone in the world, for he had neither wife nor child, Marshdale owned that he felt a pleasure in residing with the Benowards. Of course, he could not, in decent terms, so far offend them as to offer to pay for his subsistence, but he took good care that they should really be in a losers by having him as a new mate, a matter which he could easily arrange by a little presence of one kind and another, all of which he meant should be such as were not only ornamental, but actually spared his kind entertainers some positive expense, which otherwise they must have gone to. Whether or not this amiable piece of manoeuvring was seen through by the Bannerworths, it is not our purpose to inquire. If it was seen through, it could not lower him in their esteem, for it was probably just what they themselves would have felt a pleasure in doing under similar circumstances. And if they did not observe it, Mr. Marshday would, probably, be all the better pleased. Such, then, may be considered by our readers as a brief outline of the state of affairs among the banner words, a state which was pregnant with changes, and which changes were now likely to be rapid and conclusive. How far the feelings of the family towards the ancient house of their race will be altered by the appearance at it of so fearful a visitor as a vampire, we will not stop to inquire, inasmuch as such feelings will develop themselves as we proceed. That the visitation had produced a serious effect upon all the household was sufficiently evident, as well among the educated as among the ignorant. On the second morning, Henry received notice to quit his service from the three servants he had with difficulty contrived to keep at the hall. The reason why he received such notice he knew well enough, and therefore he did not trouble himself to argue about a superstition to which he felt now himself almost compelled to give way. For how could he say there was no such thing as a vampire when he had, with his own eyes, had the most abundant evidence of the terrible fact, he calmly paid the servants, and allowed them to leave him at once without at all entering into the matter, and, for the time being, some men were procured, who, however, came evidently with fear and trembling, and probably only took the place on account of not being able to procure any other. The comfort of the household was likely to be completely put an end to, and reasons now for leaving the hall appeared to be most rapidly accumulating.
End of chapter 6 Recording by Lizzie Black, Italy